Welcome to the concluding episode of our global supply chain series here on Let's Talk Trade. I'm Jessica Hermosa, Communications Officer at the WTO. Throughout Season 3, we took you on a trip along different links in the supply chain to make sense of the disruptions we are going through and to see how trade policy can help. In our final episode, we turn to the future and ask, what's next in global supply chains? The headlines so far send mixed messages, but luckily we have a special guest to guide us through it all. Annabel Gonzalez is Deputy Director General here at the WTO. She was formerly the Minister of Foreign Trade of Costa Rica, Senior Director of Trade and Competitiveness at the World Bank, and she also held high-level positions at the Inter-American Development Bank, the Peterson Institute for International Economics, and the Boston Consulting Group. DDG Gonzalez, are you worried? Given all your experience following trade issues, is today's poly crisis different to anything else you've seen before? So thank you very much, Jessica. It's a pleasure to join you and our listeners today. There is no doubt that trade is facing huge pressures from not just one, but multiple sources. A once-in-a-century pandemic, deepening geopolitical rifts, war in Ukraine, more frequent extreme weather events, global supply chain disruptions, rising inflation, and the list goes on. That's something we hadn't seen in the history of the rules-based trading system. So to answer your question, yes, I'm worried. Because with every passing day, I see the list of global challenges getting longer, while the willingness of countries to work together to tackle those challenges seems to be waning. That needs to change, and quickly, if I may say so. If we want to have a fighting chance at solving the big issues of our time, we need to come together and revitalize international cooperation in trade. I am as determined as ever to support our WTO members in finding meaningful and pragmatic ways forward and using trade to tackle the challenges of the 21st century. What is the outlook for trade and for supply chains given surging prices? So the trade outlook for 2022 has darkened, as has the overall economic outlook. The Omicron coronavirus variant has prolonged supply chain disruptions, and the war in Ukraine has driven food and energy prices higher, squeezing household budgets and stocking inflationary pressures. The WTO's latest forecast projects that the volume of global merchandise trade will grow by 3% in 2022, compared with the 4.7% we had expected in October. And between the continuing war and the recent spread of Omicron in East Asia, the risks are firmly on the downside. So let me say a word about inflation as it relates to trade. For decades, global value chains have helped to keep inflationary pressures in check. That's because when you organize production into tightly knit multi-country supply chains, you get efficiency gains, you get economies of scale, and you get more competition. And all of that acts as a lid on prices. But over the past year, supply chain disruptions have had the opposite effect. Take freight cost. The cost of shipping a container internationally is now about seven times higher than two years ago. But unwinding supply chains won't solve our inflation woes. In fact, the opposite is more likely. Reshoring supply chains would diminish productivity, and that would hurt, not help, efforts to tame inflation. 
So the best thing that governments around the world could do right now to support inflation-fighting macroeconomic policies is to embrace trade openness. That would spur competition and promote deeper and more diversified global markets. By one estimate, the United States could shave 1.3 percentage points off the inflation rate if it adopted a set of trade opening measures. Does that apply for food prices as well? We know that food prices were already high before the invasion of Ukraine due to droughts and COVID-19 restrictions. Uh, Poor countries had already seen their food import bill increase by more than 20% in 2021, according to FAO. But the war has uh, strained food supply chains further and has pushed food prices even higher. Russia and Ukraine are quite important players in global grain and energy markets. In 2020, for example, the two countries supplied 24% of globally traded wheat and 73% of sunflower oil. And Russia is also an important supplier of fertilizer globally. So the food price hikes uh, triggered by the war are squeezing household budgets everywhere and threatening hunger uh, in the developing world, especially in parts of Africa and the Middle East. The World Bank estimates, for example, that for each one percentage point increase in food prices, 10 million people are thrown into extreme poverty worldwide. So this is really quite serious. Now, faced with these threats, it is critically important that we keep global markets open and food supply chains running. Because, you know, right now, food is available in the world. So the challenge is not so much one of food availability, but one of food accessibility. And the challenge is to bring food from areas of surplus to areas of scarcity. And trade, of course, is essential to accomplish that. Under what circumstances can a trade solution work? Trade can only do its job if governments around the world pull together to avoid throwing up unjustified trade barriers. We learned that lesson the hard way last time we faced the food crisis back in 2010 and 2011. You know, at that time, several countries turned to export bans and other restrictions to cut themselves off from global food markets. And that pushed prices up by as much as 40%. This time around, the Russia-Ukraine conflict appears to have set in motion a new wave of export bans, export licensing requirements, and more. And here I have to say that the WTO has a role in helping countries avoid repeating past mistakes. And ahead of our ministerial conference in mid-June, WTO members have an opportunity to address food security challenges. For example, they could take steps to strengthen information sharing on measures they intend to adopt, They could commit not to take unjustified measures that exacerbate price hikes. They could exempt food purchases by the World Food Program from export restrictions. So we are sleepwalking into a crisis that is totally avoidable. So let's hope that WTO members can wake up and act. What about the other risk of persisting COVID restrictions and also future pandemics? Will we see continued impact on supply chains due to COVID restrictions? So this is a very important question, Jessica, because it it is true that the pandemic is still waiting on global supply chains, and this is likely to continue for some time. 
vaccination rates across countries remain unequal. Uh, and that increases the likelihood, not just of local and seasonal flare-ups, but also of dangerous new variants uh, with more far-reaching effects. So that's why we cannot really afford to sit back and hope that things will turn out all right. We need a plan, a plan that draws on the lessons of the pandemic so that we are better prepared next time a pandemic strikes. And I fundamentally see three big lessons for those of us in trade. So lesson number one is that when faced with a health emergency, trade equals strength. Trade has been a strong ally in our fight against the pandemic. Take vaccines, for example. Producing, distributing, and administering vaccines requires access to hundreds of goods, everything from active ingredients to vials to uh, specialized machinery to needles, syringes, and others. And really, there is no single country in the world that can produce all of these goods on its own. So trade and global value chains become essential to bring vaccines from the research lab to the factory gate and then into people's arms. So the rapid emergence of vaccine supply chains, you know, that span multiple borders is really, I, I like to say, one unsung success story of the pandemic. And credit really goes to the businesses which showed an incredible capacity to adapt and innovate. But the WTO, I think, also played a role. The system of rules had a stabilizing effect that helped keep markets for essential health goods broadly open. And that's, I think, the second lesson from the pandemic. A rules-based trading system matters, especially in times of crisis. And lesson number three is that better collaboration on trade equals better health. The WTO has strongly promoted international cooperation and partnerships, you know, with other intergovernmental organizations, uh, with vaccine manufacturers, with regulatory agencies uh, and countries, other stakeholders to expand access to COVID-19 vaccines, therapeutics and diagnostics. So WTO members can now come up with a robust outcome on trade and health that turns these three lessons into political commitments. And that, I think, would be a game changer uh, that would improve the trade response to this and future pandemics. So I'm really hoping that WTO will seize the moment at our upcoming ministerial conference. Turning towards geopolitical conflicts, you already mentioned the Ukraine-Russia conflict. Can you let us know if we're already seeing a realignment of supply chains because of this war? So as far as we can tell from the available data, there has been no large-scale withdrawal from global value chains so far. Now, that said, some reconfiguration of global supply chains seems likely, and companies around the world, you know, are evaluating the trade-off between risk and efficiency in light of the current shocks. But that does not necessarily mean uh, that we are about to witness a full withdrawal from global value chains in favor of uh, near or reshoring. You know, there's a recent global survey of uh, 3,000 executives that revealed that a relatively small share of uh, firms have nearshored or reshored their value chains. The large majority of companies, uh, some 80%, have instead embarked on diversification of their supplier base or are working with fewer suppliers uh, regardless of location. So we've talked about 
three risks to future supply chains, moving on to a fourth and important risk, climate change. Why is this so important to consider for supply chain resilience? So climate change uh, complicates the operation of global value chains. There's no question about that. And that's not only because of the impact of more uh, frequent uh, weather catastrophes, such as uh, flooding and uh, hurricanes on our world trade and on the logistics infrastructure, but it's also because the increased cost of uh, decarbonizing maritime and air transport uh, and the potentially disruptive effects on supply chains of different climate policies across different uh, countries. We will need well-functioning and resilient global value chains to adapt to climate change and bring it under control. Climate change will have a negative impact on agricultural productivity in many parts of the world. That will make trade and global supply chains even more important to combat hunger and help bring food uh, to where it is needed. What's more, trade and global supply chains also allow us to develop and bring climate solutions to every corner of the world. You know, take, for example, renewable energy goods and services to water-saving agricultural technologies and from waste management equipment to air pollution control devices, for example. So with all of these, I don't mean to say, you know, that moving goods across border does not contribute to carbon emissions. It does. Uh, the most recent estimates show that as much as one quarter of all global emissions are linked to the production and transportation of traded goods. That's not trivial. But it is not a reason to retreat from trade and global value chains. Doing so would deprive us from uh, what I think is a powerful tool to adapt to a harder world and to scale up and to speed up uh, the development and deployment of low-carbon technologies around the world. So retreating from trade and global supply chains would hurt, not help, the fight against climate change. As for greening the supply chain itself, the private sector is also feeling the pressure to do its part. This is what we heard from Sushant Rao of logistics firm Agility. There is so much potential in supply chains to make them cleaner because of the fact that consumers and partners across the value chain are demanding more sustainable supply chains you will see greater investments in making greener supply chains. It's, it's regulators, governments, activist investors that are pressuring companies uh, to lower or eliminate emissions um, and demonstrate responsible practices. And therefore, the amount of money which is being invested in such breakthrough technologies is increasing. This is a very interesting comment because uh, the potential to make supply chains greener and more sustainable is certainly there. And it's good that we are starting to see movement in the right direction. But change needs to happen faster if we want to meet the goals that the world has set for itself in the Paris Agreement. Efforts by consumers, by national regulators, uh, by investors could receive a big boost from international cooperation on trade and environment here at the WTO, where groups of members have recently decided to launch a number of trade and environment initiatives, including on trade and environmental sustainability, on combating plastics pollution, and fossil fuel subsidy reform. 
All of this might get some people thinking that that's a lot of risk exposure and that it would be better to decouple, as they say, and bring production back home instead. Is that tenable? So, Jessica, I was a trade minister myself, and I can understand the pressure that governments everywhere feel to exercise more control over what they produce, how they produce it, and, uh, and for whom. But to conclude from this that decoupling will magically improve resilience is, in my view, both wrong-headed and uh, dangerous. Wrong-headed because even purely domestic supply chains can be disrupted by natural or by man-made uh, disasters, and dangerous because the quest for economic resilience could quickly morph into a protectionist free-for-all, leaving everyone worse off. Even the largest, most technologically advanced countries can rely on access to a vast and complex array of global inputs that cannot be supplied domestically. Arthur Tan of semiconductor firm Integrated Microelectronics affirms this, noting that their strategy is not isolation but diversification and having multiple flexible options in their supply chain. I think what would be much more competitive right now is to be able to have the flexibility on your manufacturing capabilities and also flexibility in your supply chain. I think that's where it's going to come down to, ability to be able to do that. So I agree, huh? and that's why I've often said that we need to diversify, uh, not decouple. A better path to strengthen supply chain resilience would come from deeper and more diversified international markets, suppliers in more places, and suppliers with the capability and the incentives to be nimble and more flexible. That should be our lodestar, not, you know, a a misguided and ultimately self-defeating search for self-sufficiency. And on this positive note, what do you think an ideal supply chain of the future would look like? Well, you know, Jessica, our director general convened a meeting with uh, CEOs and other top executives from uh, companies from every part of the supply chain. And the overriding message that we heard from the group was that supply chains of tomorrow will have to be backed by seamless data sharing, modern infrastructure, and more sustainable practices. So on data, even though we are more connected than ever, Supply chains are incredibly fragmented. You know, it can take up to 20 companies to move a single shipment, each with their own systems, processes, and documentation. And this fragmentation extends to data, which is currently shared very little or not at all among supply chain participants, both in the public and in the private sector. So this lack of data sharing results in inefficiencies and blind spots that add cost and increase vulnerability to shocks. So that's one element of the supply chain of tomorrow, more data sharing to enable real-time end-to-end supply chain visibility. The second element is infrastructure. You know, from our discussions with our CEOs, we learned that the current transport and logistics infrastructure but just really not built for a world where, you know, consumers expect purchases to be delivered to the doorsteps uh, within days. So we need more investment in automation and digital technologies 
to increase efficiency at ports, at sea, uh, and on land. And we need more investments that adapt existing infrastructure to the new reality of e-commerce logistics networks, which are fundamentally different from traditional retail. And the third element that came across in this conversation with CEOs is sustainability, both uh, social and environmental sustainability. And here, it is important for businesses to pay attention to sustainability of their supply chains beyond their first-year suppliers, while governments will have to strengthen the frameworks to bring about greater, greener, and socially responsible supply chains. So all this to say that coordination between governments, businesses, and other stakeholders will be critically important to avoid divergent standards that fragment supply chains. And it is also important, and this is a point that I would really like to make, to strengthen cooperation so that small businesses, especially those in in the least developed countries and in vulnerable economies, can comply with the relevant standards and join supply chains. On a closing note, let's go back to the ultimate reason for solving supply chain disruptions. Supply chains are meant to serve people. Here's Director General Ngozio Konjo-Iwela at the WTO Trade Forecast press conference last April. It's now clear that the double whammy of the pandemic and the war has disrupted supply chains, increased inflationary pressures, and lowered expectations for output and trade growth. We're set to host our 12th ministerial conference. This makes it even more important that we continue our efforts at every level to deliver results We have a responsibility to bridge gaps and deliver for the people we're here to serve. Indeed, I think that this is the time to invest in strengthening and improving the rules-based system that we have so that it can meet the challenges of the 21st century. The founders of the rules-based trading system of the WTO, I think, understood very well that the incredible power of international trade cooperation to solve big and challenging problems. So, you know, this is not really the time to turn our backs on all this in search of some mythical alternative. Because there is only one alternative to a rules-based trading system, and it is called power-based system that puts might before right, that offers dwindling opportunities to trade and invest, and that increases trade fragmentation. So this is why a rules-based trading system is the best alternative for all. As our Director General, Dr. Ngozi Okonjo Iwala, often reminds us, we owe this to the millions of people and communities who already depend on trade for their livelihoods and to all of those who have been left behind and have yet to benefit from trade. I am hopeful that with lots of hard work, determination, and persistence, we will get there. Thank you, DDG, and thanks, too, to all our listeners and guests who have joined us on this journey along global supply chains. Over the past six weeks, you heard highlights from the Global Supply Chains Forum. You can find the link to the recording in our show notes, along with more details about the WTO's forecast for trade growth in coming years. Please subscribe to this podcast in your favorite player to get notified of upcoming seasons. If there's one common thing we've heard throughout all the episodes, it's that we have a lot of work to do. 
governments, the private sector, consumers, and the WTO. So let's get going. And thanks for tuning in to Season 3 of Let's Talk Trade.